Welcome to Grace and Glory Audio, featuring Pastor P.G. Matthew. Today, Pastor Matthew continues in the Bible series in the book of Matthew with part one of this sermon, entitled Christ Cures Lust, preached May 25, 1997. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. In the book of Deuteronomy and in the book of Exodus, we are given a list of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 and verse 14 tells us, do not commit adultery. It is known as the Seventh Commandment, governing all aspects of sexuality. The Pharisees and scribes, of course, understood it, but they looked upon adultery as the act of adultery. So they said, do not commit adultery with the wife of a fellow Israelite. Do not lie with her because it will infringe upon the right of the husband. Of course, you can lie with a slave and with a Gentile. That's okay. But if you lie with the wife of your fellow Israelite, that is wrong. They interpreted this commandment very narrowly. Just like they interpreted the other commandment, thou shalt not murder. But in the book of Psalms 119 and verse 96, we are told the commandments of God are boundless. It is exceeding broad. So not only murder is murder, but hatred is murder. And we are instructed in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 and verse 20, That our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus interprets then also this commandment about sex. He says, lust is adultery. Not just the outward act, but the inward thought. The evil imagination itself is adultery. Jesus is speaking to the citizens of the kingdom of God. And he is speaking as God. He is speaking as perfect man. And he is speaking as one who came to fulfill all the commandments. And he is speaking as the one who alone is able to interpret correctly the law. So notice in this commandment that says thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus is saying yes that act is sinful. As well as the evil imagination from which this act springs is also sinful. That's different from the interpretation of the scribes and Pharisees. Let's also look at Jesus versus the modern theologians. You heard about the new morality that came into vogue in the 60s. Theologians started it. Joseph Fletcher, Harvey Coxon, and others. New morality. Of course, new morality is the old immorality. It is that new morality that introduced moral relativism which the politicians and preachers and the church practiced. In other words, these theologians denied the authority of the scriptures long ago. 
These theologians declared that you, nobody can legislate morality. Not even God. In terms of some ten commandments. Spoken from Mount Sinai. So they denied the scripture and brought in relativism. Moral relativism. Introduced the playboy philosophy. Which is hedonistic. That fun is absolute. And have fun at all costs. And we became an indulgent society. Demanding more and more and more fun. And parents would say have, a, have fun. And they are having fun. And kids are being born. Oh these theologians spoke about situational ethics. You see you cannot say something is wrong. You cannot have any moral absolute. You cannot believe in the scripture as God's word anymore. Then what do we do theologian? He says well you have to determine whether something is right or wrong. According to the situation. And in the proper situation. Adultery is okay. And murder is okay. Lying is okay. Cheating is okay. Sodomy is okay. Homosexuality is okay. Everything is okay. As long as there is a certain situation exists. And as long as you love. Of course they don't define love. As the Bible defines love. That Jesus loved. Christ loved and gave his life for the church. No, we don't want to define situation. Nor we want to define love. It is all subjectively decided. Or they would say, you know, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, you can commit adultery in certain situations as long as you love. But let me tell you, sin always hurts a lot of people. Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. There is no situation. There is no time. Sin is protective and edifying and helpful. It is always injurious and hurtful and destructive. It destroys the adulterer. It destroys the adulterer's wife. It destroys the other man. It destroys his wife. It destroys all children. It introduces insecurity. It introduces financial chaos. It introduces fragmentation in society. It introduces crime. Don't tell me it didn't hurt anybody. How do you know? It's a lie. So these theologians introduced a lie and rejected biblical authority and God's truth. And notice gradually in most states, in these United States, sodomy is okay, adultery is okay, fornication is okay, everything is okay. Now you understand why politicians practice this nonsense. Because they were brought upon new morality and moral relativism. Thirdly, let's look at Jesus and scripture on adultery. God says in the seventh commandment that adultery is sinful. And he says in the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. So you see this idea, this deeper interpretation of this particular prohibition is already found in the tenth commandment. There it is, you shall not covet. 
The Pharisees understood it, as I said, just the outward act, especially with the wife of an Israelite brother. And so St. Paul said, as he reminisced his life as a Pharisee, he said, concerning the righteousness of the law, what? Perfect! But he said was, he never committed adultery, he never murdered, he never lied, and so on. But when he writes the seventh chapter of uh, Romans, he is already made to understand the depth and the width and the height and the length of God's commandment. And so you notice, turn with me to Romans 7. And there we read, beginning with verse 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, Do not covet. But sin ceasing, the opportunity afforded by the commandments produced in me every kind of covetous desire. See, his understanding is deepening. Not just the outward act, the covetous desire that is foul. Oh, turn with me to Luke chapter 18, where this Pharisee goes into the temple and how he prides himself. He boasts before God Almighty that he is not an adulterer. 18, the chapter of Luke and verse 11. Listen to what he says. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. And you remember the rich young ruler. He wants to receive eternal life. What do you want me to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, do the commandments. And he said, I have kept them all. No, Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. Adultery is not limited to another Israelite's wife. Evil thoughts. If any person, it says, single, married, old, young, believer, unbeliever, man, woman, if any person looks at a woman, any woman, married woman, unmarried woman, Gentile woman, slave woman, any woman, and vice versa also. With the purpose of lusting after her. Has already committed adultery in his heart. Paso brepon. Gunaika prosto epitu mesayautin. That's a new way of looking at it, isn't it? You can sit right here listening to my preaching and commit adultery all the time. Without ever moving from your seat. Turn with me to Second Peter chapter 2. And Peter tells us, probably he listened to Sermon on the Mount very clearly. And he says, with eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. He understands the roving eye, the stripping eye. Jesus said, yeah, if you look for the purpose of lusting, you have already committed adultery in your heart. The same Christ in the 15th chapter of Matthew tells us the problem is not the eye, the problem is not the hand, the problem is not the feet, but problem is the heart. Matthew 15 and verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, 
adultery, sexual immorality, and so on. You remember in John chapter 8, they caught a woman in the very act of adultery, brought before Jesus Christ. She must be stoned. What do you say? Jesus said, fine. Let those who have no sin, meaning the, those who never committed this sin of adultery, in this deep interpretation of that word adultery, cast the first stone, and they all left from the old to the young. There's only one person who never committed adultery as Jesus Christ. The reason is you read Genesis chapter 6 and 8. It tells us the extent of the sinfulness of man. Unlike Pelagius we believe as a result of Adam's sin we all have become sinners. Our nature is sinful. And that sin nature manifests itself in doing various sins. But the basic reason is a sinful heart. And Genesis 6 and Genesis 8 tells us it reaches to the very imagination. Every inclination, every imagination of a person is only evil continually. It is evil from childhood we are told. Think about it. That's why you can sit in a nice sanctuary and sin with your mind. Jesus says, if you commit adultery, your soul will be cast into hell. That's what he says. Look at it. Matthew 5. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus says, there is hell. And Jesus says, if you are an adulterer in this deep definition of Christ, then you will be thrown into hell. And if you are interested in the eternal welfare of your soul, then don't commit adultery. That's what he's saying. There is hell, brothers, and there is heaven. There is a judge, which is Jesus Christ himself. And one of these days, we'll all have to appear before him. So, notice the plain interpretation of this section of scripture is, Avoid adultery at all costs! But that's not an easy task. I said we have a problem in the very depth of our heart and being. Avoid the trap. That's what it says. It's a trap. Be careful, man, woman, young man, young woman. Be careful, there is a trap. Be very careful, be very vigilant. Scandalizo. That's the word that is used. It's a trap. And how many people without any understanding of the trap that is being laid, they just walk about and are trapped continually. Jesus is teaching, don't do that, avoid at all costs. Now my question is, whom do you believe? Jesus or Joseph Fletcher, Harvey Cox, or the modern theologians and philosophers and sociologists who continually tell us, have a good time. Whom do you want to believe? Let me tell you my choice. I want to believe Jesus Christ, God, perfect man, the author of God's law, the interpreter of the law of God, and the one who lived in complete obedience to it. And he is telling me there is a hell and there is a heaven. 
read Matthew 18 and, and tells us, by all means enter into life and avoid hell, it says. Jesus continually spoke about heaven and hell. You have people nowadays speaking about heaven and hell. No, it all gone away. Heaven went away, hell went away, sin went away, Satan went away, demons went away, everything went away. If this is true, that if you look at a woman or man with this intent of lusting, I said we all are condemned. We all are in big time trouble, isn't that true? Now the question, the fourth point is, what is the cure? Let me tell you, Jesus is the cure for all of these things. In fact, they said you should call his name Jesus, for he will save you from your sins. And you read Romans chapter 6, it tells you, having been set free from sin. Offer the parts of your body to righteousness, leading to holiness. It's all based on Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his life. But let me tell you, first of all, sex is good. Why? God created it, isn't it? And if you are thinking in your mind, you know, I want to get married, I I, I want to have children, and I want to have sex, that's no sin. Chastity before marriage and fidelity after marriage. So if somebody is thinking about marriage and sex and family and children, let me tell you, it is not sin. Marriage should be honored by all and marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral, says the writer to the Hebrews. What is the cure? Let me tell you what it is not. Asceticism is no cure. People try to practice that including the priests of the Roman Catholic Church and others, they try to practice that. They beat their bodies. They don't want to think about it, but they're always what? Thinking about it. When you practice asceticism, you're always thinking about it. You should study the life of Saint Anthony who went to the wilderness and he tells us in his own writing that he was always thinking about it. The problem is the heart, isn't it? You can go alone and be a hermit, <laughs> but you'll be thinking about it and committing adultery 24 hours of the day. So that is no answer, brothers and sisters. What about mutilation? Maybe that will do. <laughs> and there was a theologian, origin. He, he practiced it. He literally did it. Now this idea when Jesus says, cut it off, Throw it away. It is better to limp into heaven rather than leap with the whole body into hell. He says it's hyperbolic language. Don't do it. (laughs) It doesn't help. What about if you take the right eye, which is the more valuable eye, and suppose you take both eyes, and then what is it? You still have enough stored up. In your head. And you will think it there in complete darkness. It's the nature of sin. So don't cut off your eyes. and Cut off your hand. These are hyperbolic language. And I'll let you know what it means. Pretty quickly. 
So let me tell you, sex is good, marriage is God-ordained, asceticism is no cure, mutilation is no solution. Number five, understand the problem is sin nature in us. Our mind is twisted. Our will is perverted. Our emotion is twisted. Heart, the center of human personality, is twisted, corrupt, perverted. To the pure, all things are pure, but people are not pure, so everything is skewed, corrupted, and perverted. Number six, Jesus said, Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are what? The pure in heart, for they will see God. That's a problem. How can this perverted, twisted, unclean heart be made pure? Oh, that answer is found in the Holy Scripture. Based on Jesus Christ, his life and his death and his resurrection. Based on what Jesus Christ has done. Salvation comes to you, to everyone. And the Spirit of God applies this salvation to everyone who repents and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing the Holy Spirit does is to cause you to be born again. Oh, there is that evil nature, but God implants in you divine nature. Now there is a possibility for a good war. All nature, yes, it didn't go away. But you've been set free, been forgiven, justified, and you are given a new nature, divine nature, who, which thinks after God, who loves God. Cry out to God if you are a slave to sin of adultery or any other sin. Cry out to God, God, as a sinner I can only sin. That's the only thing they can do, isn't that true? Non posse what? Non pecare, meaning you can only sin. A Latin phrase, it all it means. If you are a sinner, that's all it means. You can only sin, you cannot get out of adultery. You will be committing adultery day in and day out, impossible to get out. That's what I tell you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And you don't want that? Well, be an adulterer, be foul, be a slave. And go to hell. Who said that? Jesus Christ said. But he sent his son to take you to heaven. And this is the way to do it. Cry out to God. God, I have a sinful nature. I can only sin. I'm a slave to it. I want to get out of it. I cannot do it. Help me, O God. A new nature. Number eight, not only new nature is given to you by supernatural, miraculous work of the Spirit of the living God, but God Himself comes and dwells in you. The third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of the living God, comes. That's why the Bible says, Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit daily. He comes and nourishes your spirit, empowers it. And he declares, this Holy Spirit declares the war against that sin nature flesh. You read that in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 16. You are given a divine nature. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you, declares the war against sin. 
And this Holy Spirit nourishes your spirit. The Holy Spirit guides you, instructs you, tells you. You think this Holy Spirit will guide you into sin? The Bible says he guides you into what? Truth. When you sinned, it has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. He never guides you into sin. In fact, he is the prime opponent of sin. Also, he gives you power. This Holy Spirit gives you power. And we are told about the greatness of this power. Chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eye of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And now listen. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. The same power by which God raised his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. This power is for us who believe. So there is Holy Spirit indwelling in us, waging a war against flesh, empowering us, guiding us. Hallelujah. And as a result, you win. Because John says he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. You win. Posse non pecare. You've been set free from sin, from its dominion. So now you can live a holy life. Otherwise the whole epistles are just farce. The epistles tell us to live a holy life. Isn't that true? Because God has done something about our imagination. Something about the rottenness and foulness of our heart. Our will. Our twisted feelings. He gave us new birth. New nature. His Holy Spirit has come to dwell in us. Number 11. Let me tell you the cure. Think man. From now on think. Before you could only think evil. You look and strip. And commit adultery and do everything in the heart. That's all I could do. Now all of a sudden God has done to the very imagination of our life. And now we can think differently. Imagination itself was the problem. And now we could think holy thoughts. What ability. Before... Morally totally unable. Now we are made able. To think holy thoughts. We can turn off. Put off. Isn't that wonderful. Before you cannot turn off. And put off. Turn off. Put off. Movies. Music. Videos. Internet. Turn off. If you are a Christian brothers and sisters. You are able to do so. Because you are given a new nature. And if you cannot then I say you are not born again. Cry out to God. Romans 13 and verse 14 tells us what? Make no provision for the flesh. Starve it. It's not going to die. But you can debilitate it. Make no provision for the flesh. Starve it. But feed your spirit. Put on, turn on, anything that will cause your mind to think holy thoughts. Do everything 
that will encourage you to think God's thoughts after him. Look at Ephesians 5 and verse 10 and 11. And it says this, And find out what pleases the Lord, and have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Find out what pleases the Lord. Or the great passage which you ought to memorize, Philippians chapter 4. Let me read to you from verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Is that what you do? Turn off! Turn on! Put off! Put on! Think not! Think! If you want freedom, if you want to be lifted out of the sinkhole, Romans 12, we read this. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. Don't go into the coal mines and expect to come okay. If you are a butterfly, avoid fire. Because you'll be singed. Avoid it. All right. Number 12. Learn to kill. Christians are killers. Yes, they are. Killers. Not of people, but of sin. You know, we we don't want to do that, do we? We don't want to really do that type of thing. We want to dilly-dally. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then it's defined here. Sexual immorality. What do you do? Kill. Put to death, it says. Not mean. Impurity, lust, evil, desires and greed, which is idolatry. Why? Because of this, the wrath of God is coming. I told you, hell. That's what it is. Hell is coming. Serious business. You cannot dilly-dally. Or Romans 8 verse 13 tells us to do the same thing. But there we are told the power by which we should do this. And look at verse 13. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body you will live. No compromise. No dialogue. I want to give you an illustration. You remember... Saul was told to go and wipe out the Amalekites. Isn't that true? I said, I want you to go and wipe them out. And he went. And he wiped out a few. But he certainly saved whom? The king. His name was Agag. Let me tell you, a Saul will never kill an Agag. Because he is not born again. And so read that chapter First Samuel 15, the chapter, you know, Agag, in all his kingly glory, comes confident that he can coexist with this guy, Saul, because he will not love God. Who kills Agag? Samuel. He's born again. He's a child of God. His nature is changed. He's indwelt by the Spirit. He hears the word of God and he says, bring him to me. 
and he kills him. Now let me say it again. If you are born again, you will put to death the misdeeds of your body. If you are not, you will not do it. You will dilly-dally. You will compromise. You would say it's okay. You will talk about the beneficial effects of sin. It helps you to loosen up. You know, it's amazing how people can see beautiful things in Zur. They do see. They rationalize it. Saul rationalizes and said, yeah, I did everything you said. And I'm telling you, if you are a Saul, you will not put to death. Because you have no hatred for sin. But Samuel did. And my counsel to you is, be a Samuel. Number 13. You see, God wants our eyes and mind and will and hand and feet and property to be used to glorify him. Isn't that true? Romans 6 and verse 13. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin. Why? You've been set free from sin. That is from its dominion. Do not offer parts of your body to sin. When you think about evil things, you are offering your mind. When you view evil things, you are offering your eye. And so on. When you use your money to buy pornography, you are offering your substance. As instruments of wickedness, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instrument of wickedness. This is only possible if you are born of God, if you are a Christian. But what? Rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Notice the radical transformation. And offer the parts of your body to him as what? Instruments of righteousness. And he says the same thing in Romans 6 verse 18. Or Romans 12 verse 1 he says present your bodies a living sacrifice. God redeemed it. It belongs to him. You are a thief if you use God's property and put it into unlawful use. Any part of the body. First Corinthians chapter 6. Let me read to you from verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Now, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? We spoke about that. You are born again and the Spirit of God has come to dwell in your heart. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore what? Honor God. Serve God. Obey God. With your body. That's the purpose. I said you are a thief. And I am a thief. If I put my body to unholy use. Because I am taking someone else's property. And putting into some other use. Number 14. That's a four letter word. What is that? Flee! Flee! Sodom is about to be destroyed and the angel is telling Lot and his family what? Flee! Come on, flee! This is danger! This is death! Destruction! He's coming! Flee! Satan doesn't tell that. He says it's nice. 
New morality wouldn't tell you that. New morality is immorality. It's destruction. But here the Holy Spirit tells you, flee, get out. Come on, get out. For your life, get out. Read that in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. St. Paul counsels Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 22. Flee, youthful lust, flee. Young people, old people, and everybody else, flee. And I'm sure the writer is also speaking about Joseph in Potiphar's house. Tempted daily. And he flees. Runs. Save yourself from destruction. And see Joseph running. But then we see another guy. In the book of Judges, his name is Samson. Judges 16, the chapter This Samson was attracted to a prostitute. What's her name? Delilah. Delilah. Must have been a gorgeous person. And you could see Samson's eyes full of what? Adultery. It was a trap. Isn't that true? I told you it was a trap. But he doesn't see it. He walks into the trap. And now see him coming out blind. Naked as a slave, grinding the mill. Think about it. That's why it said, flee, flee, flee. If you don't, they will gouge your eyes out. And you will be the slave. And you will be destroyed. We pray that you help us today to serve with great delight this God. To love this God. To fear this God. To pay heed to the counsel. That he has given us in his holy word. That we may live a life. That is a life of freedom. If the sun sets you free. You are free indeed. And no nation can set us free from sin. So you send your son to set us free from the dominion of sin. Lord, we pray especially for those who are still slaves to sin. We pray that you have mercy upon them. That they may cry out to Jesus Christ. They may repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone. That they may be made slaves of God. And set free from sin. It's dominion and it's power. It's pollution. For we pray in Jesus name. Amen.